0: Dear Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts and our minds for your word. Father, let us be not just hearers of your word this morning, but hearers and doers. Let us uh, meditate and consider what you have prepared in your word for us this morning. Open our hearts, Father, to remove those barriers of habit, those barriers, Father, of uh, false teaching or false conclusions we may have heard in the past, Father, Remove the barriers of just laziness in our lives. Let this Word do its work. And Father, for our gathering this morning, we've come to praise You in spirit and in truth, to worship You, Father, not just in song, but in Your Word. Let our worship be pleasing to You this morning, Father. Let our hearts be true and let our purpose be sincere. I pray, Father, that a gathering like this, brought together by Your Spirit in Your name, could be mighty in your presence, Father, to be useful, to be a beacon, Father, to be a light in this city. And we pray that you have that purpose and you would work through this group for that purpose and use your word to build us up and equip us for that purpose. And we give this to you in Jesus' name, Amen. There's a story of of a mom who looked outside her kitchen window at her young son playing in the yard and she noticed him playing church. He had taken the kittens of the family and lined them up on the grass and was preaching to them, much like they were his congregation, and she smiled, thought that was, was uh, sweet, went back to her work, and then in a few moments she heard this, this horrible screaming of these, of the cats, this hissing and meowing, and she runs back to the window and looks out and finds Johnny dunking the cats in water, <laughs> and she says, she yells, Johnny, stop that, the kids, the kittens don't like water, and Johnny yelled back, well, they should have thought of that before they joined my church. That story reminds me a little bit about this letter, and I'll I'll tell you why. Because sometimes I feel a little bit like those kittens. As I read through a letter written from an apostle to the church, to you and I, obviously, today, I feel like one minute, as I was walking in my early faith, I was playing church. And I was uh, kind of going through the motions of what it meant to be a Christian based on what I saw others doing around me. And, you know, that was pretty easy, actually. That was pretty convenient. It worked with my schedule. It worked with my life. I could fit it in just the way I wanted to fit it in. But then the next minute, the Lord got serious with me and in the way He did it through His Word and through His calling on my life and in His uh, gracious desire to reveal to me His plan for my life, but more specifically, His expectations on anyone who is called to be His child. And those expectations changed what I had in my life as priorities or changed in my life what I saw as my my calling to serve Him, what it meant to be a serious, devoted, mature Christian in my walk, suddenly took on the, this, much, this much heavier weight. It was a privilege. It was a grace and an opportunity. Yeah, but it was also an obligation on my part to step into this role, to recognize it and to step into this role. And all of a sudden it felt a little bit like being dunked in cold water. Not the baptism, mind you, but the, the realization that being a Christian was more than just a club. More than just an activity once a week, more than just a title that I like to claim for myself whenever I was in a moment when that was convenient. And and I think many Christians probably identify with that cold splash of water in the face. And that's what what Peter's letter is really about, to a church in a different time and in a different place, certainly, but really no different from us. This was a letter to sort of splash a little water in the face and, and remind them of what it meant to be a Christian of what that calling really consists of. Let's go back into the book that we've been in, First Peter. I-, I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one under your seat. And I would strongly encourage you to have the Bible open, not, not mechanically, but because the Lord is going to speak to us through His Word. And it's a lot easier if it's open than if it's closed. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. We'll pause there just for the moment. Chapter 2 begins with this word we've already seen once in this study, the word therefore. Remember the joke again? When you come to the word therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? The point is that he's made a transition. He's come out of some thought and he's moving into a new thought and they're related in some way. And so he uses the word, therefore. What is he tying it back to? Well, at the end of chapter 1, the conversation was, we were brought into faith by the Word of God, by the seed, which is the Word. Being brought, being chosen and called and brought into faith by the Word of God, therefore, he says, you have two things that he expects the church to do. He begins by saying, put aside these various sins or characteristics that may have marked your life prior to faith, and in some cases may still be with you, even though you have faith. And then secondly, he says, "Long for the word of God. Long for the milk, which is the word of God." Now what's interesting to me about how he starts chapter two is, if you consider back in chapter one, he's already given in chapter one, a command to believers to put aside these lusts. Remember we talked about that a week or two ago. He didn't name out what lusts he meant. He talked in general terms, and we went through some of what that meant things of uh, uh, sins of one nature or another that will command our attention through our flesh and draw us away from the holiness that we are expected to pursue. What's interesting to me is he's already gone through that, but then now at the beginning of chapter 2, he seems to be revisiting this issue of sin, but now he names five specific sins. The first two of those five, if you notice, they're heart attitudes. They're the way we might perceive somebody or perceive something. Then the next three are actions that arise out of those heart attitudes. I mean, look at the list. It's interesting here that we don't see a broader spectrum of sin in this list? I mean, where are the sexual sins? All the perversions and all the various ways we can, we can fall and sin in a sexual context. What, what about the greed sins? What about all the sins of money and greed that we always hear about in the Bible? Where are those in this list? And what about sins of violence? Murder, hatred of one kind or another. Why aren't those on this list? I mean, if you were to make a list of sin that you wanted the church to abstain from, wouldn't those kinds of things be high on the list? It almost seems arbitrary that he pulled out these somewhat minor, if you will, somewhat less consequential sins and listed them here at the beginning of chapter 2. Here's why I think he does this. First of all, Peter's writing to the church. He's writing to men and women who he would assume are believers by faith in Christ. And therefore, they are already children of God. And in the church, generally speaking, now I'm saying this generally, there are exceptions, I realize, but generally speaking, in any healthy church you find the church fairly vigilant against those sins I mentioned a minute ago. The church is, generally speaking, fairly vigilant against uh, believers who might be living openly in some kind of sexual immorality or living openly in some kind of of sin of greed. I mean, for example, if you had somebody in this church who was carrying on an affair and doing it in a public way, would the church not take some steps to deal with that issue in the church? I I certainly hope so. I certainly hope the leadership would recognize that they have an obligation to step in and if nothing else, at least move that person out of fellowship so that their influence cannot spread to others in the group. Hopefully more than that, hopefully we're able to show them the error of their way and bring them back to an obedient life. But, but at the very least, we probably wouldn't ignore it, would we? And what about greed? If you knew of somebody in the church who was actively stealing or had in some way made known that they cheat on their taxes regularly or whatever, would we not confront them on that? Again, I hope so, because a healthy church should be prepared to do that when necessary. And if somebody were openly hostile, if they punched somebody in the church, if they were known you know, for being an attempted murderer, I mean, these are sins that are serious, but in general, churches do a decent job of clamping down on that, of addressing the sinner, and if necessary, putting them out of fellowship, if that's the only solution. It's these other sins, though. These five that, that Peter mentions in this letter These sins often live quite comfortably within the context of the church, don't they? And they often are characteristic of even mature believers on occasion. I mean, look at them in particular. You have these two attitudes, malice. Malice is just ill intent. It's someone who has an evil thought or an evil feeling directed at another person. Malice. Then there's deceit. Now, deceit is just lying in all its forms. Not being honest, not being transparent in some respect. Malice and deceit. Those two sin attitudes then result in the three actions that you see following in the list. The next three actions he he mentions, the next three sins, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is just a form of deceit. It's basically when you or I were to pass ourselves off to be somebody we're not, or something that we're not, and usually with the intent to make ourselves look better than we really are. Right? It's not merely that I want to call myself a policeman when I'm not, it's that I think... Calling myself a policeman makes you think better of me in some respect. Or I can manipulate you or get something out of you in some way. A more common way of hypocrisy, of course, is to leave somebody thinking you're more spiritual and holy than you really are. They start talking about Bible study and you're quick to chime in, yeah, I read my Bible every day, even though I really don't. Or I talk about prayer. Yeah, I prayed for you. Well, I just said I prayed for you. I didn't actually pray for you. Okay, I've done that one too. I'm sorry. (laughs) But it's hypocrisy in in that we're trying to make ourselves look like better than we really are and we're doing it through a deceptive statement of some kind, deceptive practice. Then there's envy. Envy is just a form of malice. Envy is really the the act of despising another for having something we wish we had or being something that we wish we were. So the irony is that I can hate you because you have the car, but of course I wish I had the car myself. So it's an envy, it's it's a form of malice. I have an evil thought about somebody else. And slander, I I like slander because it really connects the two. Slander is the perfect intersection of malice and deceit. Because when I I slander someone, it's a defamatory statement. It's a statement designed to cause injury against somebody else. But usually, it's a false statement. I've had to concoct something in order to make it damaging against the other individual. Now, I'm leaving aside for the moment gossip. Gossip is another form of slander, but it doesn't necessarily have to be false. It's just that we're saying things knowing it's going to hurt somebody if we say it. But in all these cases, you see the relationship now. It's coming down to whether or not we are having good or evil thoughts, and whether or not we are honest or whether we are dishonest in what we say or do. That's the connection between these five things. Now, I think we would all like to believe that when we come into the confines of this building, or gather with the believers wherever that happens to, to take place, we'd like to think that these five things are not in the room. That we know they're, because we know they're in the world, right? I mean, if you work, or if you go to school, or if you breathe and eat, You've experienced these five things somewhere in your daily walk, right? We encounter them almost everywhere we go. In my case, I tend to see it a lot on the freeway, on the way to work. You know, it's busy. The roads are packed. You're trying to get in. You're going on the access road, coming onto the entrance ramp. The cars are packed up. Now, they know you're going to get in. They know you have to get in. They know they have to make room for you. They know if they slow down just a little bit, they'd let you in. And they know that it's not going to change when they get to where they're going, one iota, if they just let you in. But they won't let you in right you fight your way in you just want to open the window and look at the guy and say i've got to get in you know i've got to get in you know it's it's malice it's malice and and by the way we tend to be more malice prone when we get behind the anonymity of a car don't we you see it in office in offices all the time and i think particularly in an office setting you'll see combinations of envy of malice and slander constantly in most office settings you know the phrase cya i'm not going to say it out loud you know but it's cover your rear It's this principle that says I've got to be sure that I've taken precautions to protect myself against the person or persons who might try to say something about me in in a slanderous way or might envy my success and try to thwart it or undermine it in my workplace. There's a sense in almost every place I've ever worked of I've got to be willing to cover my tracks, cover my rear, as the saying goes, so that no one will come from behind when I'm not expecting it and cut me out, make me look bad in front of my boss, do something like that. That's the world we live in. So if we know that's the world, I can give you examples on and on and on, right? In our neighborhoods or in our own families, this kind of thing happens in one way or another. We know that, right? Then we come into this building and our assumption is, well, at least here, among the believers, I won't have to worry about whether somebody is going to try to attack me behind my back. I don't have to worry about someone showing envy for what God may have given me or or, or allowed me to do. I don't have to worry about whether or not somebody is going to slander my name to somebody else, right? But that's not how it works, is it? I mean, if you think that's how it works, I, don't want to, I really don't want to break that naivete because good for you. <laughs> you know, I wish I could remember the, the time when I used to know that about the church. But the truth is, in the church we often see a microcosm of what is in the world, though that shouldn't be the way it is. Peter mentions these things, I believe, in his first letter because he knows they are still commonplace within the church in many cases. They are things that mark us in a way that seems like the, old, the world rather than like the church. They are traits that we bring in from the world, but we shouldn't. And he's turning to the church here and he's saying, you were saved by the Word of God, you were brought into this family, therefore, let's not be like the world. He says, literally, put aside these things. The phrase in the Greek, it literally means to take off a piece of clothing, to take off a coat and set it aside. If you were to go to Acts chapter 7 when you see the stoning of Stephen... And as you may have studied that moment in the history of the church as Stephen is being stoned, there's a moment right before the stoning when those who are going to stone him take off their coats and lay them at the feet of a man named Saul. The Greek word used in Acts chapter 7 for taking off the coats, exactly the same word as is being used here in First Peter. So he's giving an image to the reader here of you are wearing this nature that is not truly who you are anymore. In fact, as a believer, you have to make a conscious decision that you're still going to walk and act in the way you used to be dressed, so to speak. You have to continue to wear this outer view of yourself that was true for who you used to be, but now it's really just clothing you could take off, you could put aside a coat you don't have to wear, but of course, the rest of the world is still wearing theirs and to some extent, maybe we feel comfortable keeping in the same clothing on, if you can use the analogy. You don't have to be malice, show malice towards somebody else. You and I do not have to slander other people. We have a choice in whether or not that will mark our life or not. And Peter is saying unequivocally, unequivocally, take that thing off and set it aside. And I think in our experience in the church, it comes down to trust. You have to consciously not CYA anymore. Right? You have to be thinking about my brother and sister in the Lord is on the same team as me. And I'm going to speak honestly and without slander, without malintent. And I'm going to trust that my transparency with my brothers and sisters in the Lord will not be returned with malice or slander, with envy, with the kinds of things he says put aside. And you know what? You and I will be disappointed. We will be disappointed. And we will accept disappointment. And we will continue to do the right thing. It's not a tit for tat. It's not that... I'll be nice as long as they're nice. That gets us nowhere. That's the world's way of doing things, right? As Christ said, what value is it if you're nice to your friends? That's what the world does. There's no spirituality. There's no sanctification present in doing what the world does. The call of the body of Christ is to come together and by the sharing of our gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit, we would build each other up for the purpose of going out and doing ministry. But if I come into a world like this and I'm not transparent because I'm afraid that if I open up and tell you the truth, you'll use it against me, then how will you you ever know where it is I'm struggling and help me contend and overcome those struggles? And on the other hand, if somebody else does open up in transparency and you turn around and use that against them in slander or in envy in some other way, how are you doing anything but tearing down the body of Christ? It is literally impossible, in my opinion, for the Holy Spirit to build this body up or any body up to the work of ministry if we are not transparent, meaning we are not deceitful, and if we are not uh, refraining from malice, if we do not control our thoughts, make them captive to Scripture and to the Holy Spirit, and return error with love. If we cannot show love and kindness in the face of whatever, we will never grow either. So, So if that's going to be the hope of this body, to grow and to mature and to be a light on the hill and to do all that God would call it to do, you must, I must, put aside any malice and any deceit as it manifests itself in our lives. To the extent you do, to the extent I do, we mature. And rapidly so. To the extent we refrain, we hold that coat on and we don't give it up, we stop still in our maturity. We're just the world sitting in this room. That's that's the call Peter has put on the church here as he opens up in chapter 2. How do we leave these sins behind? How do we accomplish what he's just called us to do? That was step 2 in the verses I just read. Long for the Word of God. Long for it. He says specifically, be like a newborn child that longs for milk. I love this picture. It's used here. It's used in a couple of other places in the New Testament, most notably at the very end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6 in the book of Hebrews. Great place for a cross-reference if you want to look more into this. The picture here is one of dependence. If you know what a newborn is like, and all of us hopefully have that experience. Some of us have had it a lot more lately, right? If you know what a newborn is like, there's some things about a newborn and milk The the relationship there that is very instructing, very helpful to us if we want to understand how we are to view the Word of God. First, let's begin with what a definition of the Word of God is. This is the Word of God. Now, that may seem a little odd that I would even mention that, but I want to say something about what what that means. Number one, in Peter's day when he said the Word, he meant the Old Testament because all that existed in written form and accepted as written Scripture in his day was the Old Testament. Now, obviously, the New Testament was being written even as he wrote his own letter, and later, the canon was recognized to include all the letters that we now have in the New Testament and the Gospels, of course. So today, the Word is both Old and New Testament for you and I. The principle is the same. The Word of God is this. Now, the Word of God is not a commentary on this. How many of you have Bibles that have the study notes at the bottom? Right? So the question is, when you're reading your Bible, do you start at the bottom or do you start at the top? Right? And, and when you start at the bottom, you know, it's real tempting, right? Because it's like the answers are at the bottom. <laughs> so I just read the answers, right? Well, I'm not saying commentaries aren't helpful, but commentaries are not the Word of God. Neither is a best-selling pastor's uh, book on the, on, the, on the book stand today. That's not the Word of God. The Word of God is not to include any of those derivative forms that are out there. Now, again, I'm not saying those aren't helpful. What I am saying, though, is what Peter is about to ascribe here to the Word of God, the power... the the necessity, the importance of it, does not transfer by association to those derivative forms. You can't say that because you're studying somebody's book about the Bible, you'll expect all the benefits that would accrue from reading the Bible. Huge difference. World of difference. There's all the difference in the world between what God inspired and what men wrote. So knowing that, when you look at the Bible in general and it talks about the importance and the preeminence and the sufficiency of the Word of God, you must understand he's talking, the authors are always talking about you opening this book and reading it and not the study notes. And, And use those other tools, but use them in light of and in context with what you're studying in the Scriptures itself. And if you find yourself in a place in your life where you can't seem to get anything out of the Bible, but you get a lot out of these commentaries, then what you've done effectively is you've put aside the milk of the Word of God and you're eating junk food. Now, junk food is a great analogy because if I take an infant and I start feeding an infant junk food, let's say, or maybe even a better example is water. Because in many ways, those derivative teaching tools, they're like the watered-down version of the Bible. Only in the watering down of it, it loses all its uh, inspired nature, loses all its power. So if I were to feed an infant water, and mothers, you've done this on occasion. I know if the child is hungry and you don't have any food nearby, you give a bottle of water. It's a temporary thing, right? If you do nothing but give the child water, it'll die. Eventually it dies. It can't subsist on it. It'll keep sucking at it because it's desperate for something, but it won't get anything out of that. If it were possible for an infant to eat junk food in some form, it would probably take that in because it's hungry. But at some point, malnourishment, uh, disease, The inability to even survive takes place. And and in a Christian's walk, what we're talking about here is someone who has denied the truth of Scripture on a regular basis is stunted in their growth. They they effectively go nowhere. And they're going to suffer at the hands of that. They're going to have the same kinds of problems in a spiritual sense that a baby would have in a physical sense. That's the nature of not having the Word of God as a steady diet. On the other hand, if I were to give that infant what it really wants, milk, and it recognizes it's received milk, do you know what the effect of that is? Try giving it water. Try taking the milk away and giving it water. It's going to go, no, 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 give me the thing I just had. Once you know the real thing, you don't want the fake thing anymore. But you have to train it. You have to expose it to the real thing. You have to give it a chance to know what the real thing is capable of doing for it. Then and only then does it recognize, ah, that's the difference. I don't want that fake thing anymore. One of the things that my wife and I have struggled with in our marriage is that early on in my walk, after I became a Christian, which happened after we were married, uh, we got into a church that taught verse, verse by verse, basically what I'm doing here. Take a book, run through it. Take a book, run through it. Never stop. Never do anything different. No topical, no series on this and that. Just open the Bible and study it forever. In fact, the guy that we used to, to go listen to I was a church in Colorado, he started in Genesis, finished, finished in Revelation about nine years later and started over. That's all he did. And we went from that church to another city when I moved and, and tried to find another church And and what I was quickly aware of was my complete intolerance and impatience for anything else. Having been exposed to the Word of God in that way, and I'm not saying dogmatically that's the only way to study the Bible, I'm just saying that in the revelation of the Word being taught in that way, I I was eating meat and I was on the milk of the Word and all these analogies to just reflect the fact that I was feasting on God's Word and then I came to churches where that wasn't the practice and it was like, oh come on, it's like drinking water. When do we get to the real stuff? Because I can't take any more of this. You know That was my intolerance. And it's very difficult. And, and arguably we shouldn't try to overcome that. We should recognize that that's a sign of where we should be seeking nourishment from, from the Word of God. He says, long for it like a child, like an infant. If you're talking about the Word of God being a source of power for the sake of overcoming those sins, let me explain to you, it doesn't work like you would think it works. It doesn't work like the world would think it works. The world would say, okay, I've got a problem. I'm a single dad. Uh, I hate my kids and I don't like my job and I have this struggle in my life and I need a... Where does the Bible talk about that? Where's the verse that says, you know, for dads who hate their children and don't want to do this and that? You might find one, but then again, you might find nothing, right? Right? It's not like the dictionary. It's not an encyclopedia. You don't pull it off and find the topic, read it, and then just assume the knowledge itself is your salvation. It's the living and active Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. In my experience, when, I, when God's been wanting to deal with me on something in my life, it will come because I'm reading in His Word something completely unrelated to the issue at hand in my life. Because God wants to demonstrate the power of his word is not in the, the literal language. Now, I'm not minimizing the importance of the words, mind you, but I am suggesting that its power in your life transcends the words. It is the Holy Spirit working in your heart through the word to change an attitude. So, I'm reading on some aspect of the word. It's, I'm meditating or I'm just letting it soak in and all of a sudden a thought or an impression is made in my heart or in my spirit that, you know, Steve, you really should put aside that issue in your life. Or you ought to hand this over to God. Or you need to go and apologize to that person. Or whatever it is, God wants to put in my walk. And it's like, where did that come from? Well, I don't know, but I know God told me to do that. Why? Because I was devoting time to His Word. Not because the page itself was the page. Wiersbe once said, It's sad when Christians have no appetite for God's Word, but must instead be fed religious entertainment. If you don't know, if you haven't looked around, the world we live in today, the churches that ring this city and most cities in the country... Have decided that what helps bring people in the door and make them feel comfortable in some sense is entertainment. you know a show a good show, very professional show in many cases, and because they 're being entertained they 'll want to come back for more entertainment folks they 're dying on the vine with junk food, and they won 't know it they, they probably won 't know it until it 's too late. Make your goal to long for the word. I want you to take a look at the transition Peter just made out of chapter 1 to the beginning here of chapter 2. If chapter 1 ended saying you're saved by the Word of God, what has Peter just introduced at the beginning of chapter 2? You are sanctified by the Word of God. So here again, the tool that saves you is the tool that will also make you a better person, that will mature you in your walk. Do you see a theme here? Do I need a lot of tools? <laughs> if this is capable of saving me, Right, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 10. If we are saved by the word, and then likewise, he says, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5.25, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So if the tool that saves you is the tool that sanctifies you, and if that's the call on a Christian, where else do you go? If you're struggling in your life with some issue right now or issues or questions or problems and you've been reading everything and anything on the topic trying to find a solution and you still haven't found a solution, maybe the problem is that you're reading everything and anything. Maybe the problem is you didn't stay at home with the Word where you already had everything you needed. Just don't be impatient. You're not going to turn to the page that has the magical answer. More than likely, you're going to spend time in it and over time, God's going to work through it. Okay. Peter says the church has to put off those obstacles on our way to being useful for his work. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him then, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, he says, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture." One thing I didn't mention at the very end of verse 3 that ties us directly into what we study now in these verses is this basic principle that says, until you are a believer, well, none of this really matters. One of the errors any church can make is to try to take unbelievers in and make them look like believers in the hope that somehow that will transfer into faith. The example would be, you know, if you want to be a Christian, first of all, let's stop smoking. And all that swearing, we don't do that. And, uh, by the way, you need to dress a little better. Be here every Sunday. We've got a Bible study on this night. You need to attend there. By the way, if you tithe, you need to tithe. You see, we set up all the rules which define the look of a Christian. And the analogy would be putting lipstick on a pig. You know, it's this thought that I can externalize my faith. I can turn it into rules, place it on top of you, and then they'll sink in and somehow that turns you into a Christian. Of course, it doesn't work that way. All you've done is, as I said, put a lipstick on a pig. It looks better maybe, but they're not any more of a Christian because the Christian isn't about what you do. It's what you believe. And in new faith, in belief, that will produce a change in what you do by the Holy Spirit. So when Peter wrote in the beginning of this chapter to verse 3 and said, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord, he sets up a prerequisite. He says, what I'm about to teach you here is really dependent on you having faith to begin with. If you believe in Christ for your salvation, then all of what I'm about to say has potential value to you. But of course, if you haven't believed, well, this is all moot. Because until belief, nothing else can come about. Likewise, in chapters, chapter 2, verses 4-8, through eight, it's implied here that he is describing believers, these living stones we'll talk about more in a minute. And he contrasts at the very end in verse 8 that group of people with a different group who encountered Christ, but they stumbled as to fall, as to not accept Him. And as a result, they were appointed to a doom. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. So a prerequisite to doing any of these things is our faith. So if God is at work in us to create holiness, we said that in chapter 1, and demand obedience, which we're now talking about, what's it for? How does he intend to put it to use? If the church were to become holy and show self-control, put aside these garments of sin, and be the person God wants us to be, now what? Now what? Peter says that when Christ himself was called the chief cornerstone, God looked upon him and said, you are my choice for that cornerstone and you are precious in my sight. And we are likewise living stones in that same pattern. And the comparison he's making here in these verses shows us, uh, in some respect, how it is we're going to be put to use in our walk, assuming we yield to the Holy Spirit and become holy and obedient. Think about what a cornerstone is. Now you've heard the phrase, right? Jesus was the cornerstone, He is the rock. In the day Christ walked the earth, what was a carpenter? He was a carpenter, right? Well, What was a carpenter? What did a carpenter do? Cut wood? Nail wood up? No. They used stone. A carpenter in Jesus' day is a stone cutter. Buildings were made out of stone. Virtually no wood. Mostly stone. So when we're talking here about stone cutting, we're talking about carpentry. And in the case of a cornerstone, you had to have one stone set up, uh, the initial stone placed on the ground to set the building by what made that stone so important was not the sense of it holding weight. It's not because it was on the bottom. That, that's part of it, but that's not the main concern. When I select a cornerstone, the thing I'm most concerned about is that it would be perfectly square in all three axes. You know, if you know geometry, you got your X and your Y and your Z. I want to make sure that on all of those planes, the stone is perfectly square and flat, perfect 90-degree angles. If any of those angles are off, even just a little bit, that error propagates through the line of the building so that you end up with a building that's not square and it gets worse as you go farther down the line. So it's critically important that that cornerstone be perfect in every respect. In the way Peter describes Jesus, he reminds us, and and in fact, he reminds us out of Old Testament Scripture, that Jesus was set to be a cornerstone for a new building, for something that was going to be built on top of him as the foundation. But when he came in his day, the leaders of the nation of Israel, the builders in their day, looked upon him and said, no, you're not the cornerstone we want for our building. Think of it. They were builders in the sense that they were commissioned by God as leaders to build up the people of Israel, spiritually speaking, to lead them to be their spiritual leaders in their, in their own day. And they were waiting for a Messiah, and the people were waiting for the leadership to tell them who the Messiah was, to, to find the Messiah and point him out to the people, and to essentially endorse him. And when the leadership looked at Jesus and said, this can't be our Messiah, the people went along with that de- decision. And they were essentially like builders coming on the job site, looking at the cornerstone and saying, no, 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 this isn't the one we want, it won't work, get it out of here. And if a cornerstone, by the way, wasn't fit for the purpose, you couldn't fix it. You can't chisel it down because then it becomes too small. It's already been chiseled to the right size to begin with and if it wasn't done right, it's just thrown away. It's of no good. And they threw Jesus away. He was the the stone they rejected. But God looked upon Christ and said, no, men's ways are not my ways. This is the perfect stone for the building I intend to build. And it's my choice. I choose him to be my cornerstone. Does this sound familiar? A stone that God selected for a purpose that the world looked upon and said, that can't be good for anything. That's not what we would assume God would choose. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. There are not many mighty. There's not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things that are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So, just as it is, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's beginning to make a comparison here in First Peter between Christ as the cornerstone and you as... Little Christs, which is what the word Christian means, little Christ, you're like a little version of the cornerstone. You're a living stone in that you're not dead, you're still alive and in your current state as a living, breathing human being in the church by faith, you are a little version of that cornerstone. Now, how do I build a real building? I don't have a building when I have a cornerstone, do I? I just have the beginning. Very important beginning, very necessary big beginning, but it's still just the beginning. I then go and get more stones, which are basically like the cornerstone, Fashioned in a similar way, and they're built on top of it. And next thing you know, if I add enough of these stones, I have a building. I have something that is a, a presence in the world that people can look at and see and gives, gives structure, gives purpose, and, and, and gives form to what I intended to build when I laid that cornerstone in the first place. But what's interesting about how God is building this church, which we know, under, you understand the building here is the church, the body of Christ. Not, not this building, right? But the body of Christ. As God is going about building it, he's building it the same way he started it. He chooses who's in, and he appoints the person to that role, and yet he is by design choosing the people that the world would reject. That if the world were to look upon us and say, you are part of a worldwide important movement that will save the earth, oh, whoa, well, we really didn't get a good start on this, did we? Cause we, didn't, we generally speaking didn't pick a lot of power, powerful, rich, noble people, did we? God seems to be at work in doing that. Greatest revivals in the world start in third world countries sometimes, in the middle of nowhere, among people who have nothing to offer the world, but that's how God chooses to bring men to faith, so that no man may boast as to how they became a child of God. We are choice and we are precious. And just like the original cornerstone, we therefore should expect rejection from the world. That's the natural consequence of being in this new building. Matthew five ten, Jesus says this Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, get used to it. Get used to it. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of the building you've become a part of. You know, one of the things that should worry us is if we are not experiencing persecution for our faith, it's not that the principle changed. It's that we're not showing any evidence to the outside world of who we are. Because to the extent you are who you are in Christ to the world, they will reject you for it. The more you are a Christian in the world, the more they'll reject you. The more you show your faith in the world, the more they'll despise you. It's an absolute perfect corollary. You only have to talk to a missionary to know that. The world just wants you to go back to being like them. That's all they want. And if you just do what they do, they'll leave you alone. But if you stand for Christ in a way that is visible and different, well, be ready for persecution. If that's you, praise the Lord. The prophet's had it too. Your reward in heaven will be great. In verse 5, Peter says, We are living stones who are a holy priesthood. Now, you know, priests under the Mosaic law in the time of Israel, those priests were the ones who were appointed to serve the Lord in the tabernacle or later in the temple. That was the role of a priest. I know in today's world the word gets used a lot in other traditions or in other faiths. I want you to understand what it means biblically. The priests were those who would go before the altar of God and perform the sacrificial ceremony that the law required on behalf of the people. They were the intermediaries, the intercessors. They were the ones who had the privilege to go into the holy place and give sacrifice for those in the nation of Israel who needed it, which was the whole nation. These were sacrifices offered by the priests on behalf, using animal sacrifices, uh, gifts of one kind or another, grain and so on. Peter says, though, that now the royal priesthood serving God is the church. Now, I want to be careful here because there's a couple of ways you could get this misunderstood. Number one, as we've said already, the church is not the building. So we talk here about serving the church. It's not about coming into this room per se. It's not about a location. Now it's a people. The church is the people. This building goes away, the church is still here. The second thing to understand here is I'm not advocating that the church is Israel. There is a form of theology that believes that after it, uh, Christ came and the church was established, that we now replace Israel in God's plan. That all of the promises of the Old Testament that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have since been forfeited by the nation of Israel, and those promises now are exclusively to belonging to the church. That's a false doctrine. The scripture is clear that God is true to his promises and the promises he made to the nation of Israel he will fulfill one day. In the interim though, in this current present time, he has put aside the nation of Israel just temporarily. Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 that they've been hardened, but only for a time. And during this time, this window of opportunity, he has opened up an opportunity for the Gentiles of the world, you and I, to receive and be a part of the same promises he gave to the nation. So the promises to the nation of Israel still exist for the nation. We are being grafted in, Paul says. We are sharing now in something that we are not naturally a part of, by birth. Praise the Lord. But there will be a day in the future when that window closes for the Gentile nations and God returns his attention to the nation of Israel and completes his work with them and restores them as he has promised to do. We're talking here about a nation of the future, of people who are yet to be born maybe. But in any case, we're saying that now, in the current age, and the current time we're in, we satisfy all the purposes God has intended for the, ter- for the nation of Israel. We are his priesthood. We are those who now perform sacrifices of service and intercede on behalf of the body of Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We now form the priesthood of all believers and that priesthood is not one of robes and ceremony and going into special dark rooms and special you know, secrets that only we know. It's about the general work of all believers to do what the priesthood used to do for the nation of Israel. We go in, we provide spiritual service which is sacrificial service to the body of Christ. We don't take an animal and kill it. We rather empty ourselves. We make ourselves the sacrifice in our time and in our money and in our effort. Secondly, the priest used to intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel in prayer, in incense, in the temple, in the tabernacle. We now do that through prayer, through corporate prayer. Similarly, we now can lead in worship. We can now lead the members of our body in worship, and in that way also we are a priesthood. These are all common things we all participate in. That's the priesthood of believers. Peter goes on in verse 9 and 10 and says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does your Bible have a lot of those words either capitalized or italicized? What it's showing you is that in the sentences I just read, Peter quotes from numerous Old Testament verses, sort of sprinkling in all these phrases, but he doesn't quote any of them in total. He like takes a word out of one and a phrase out of another one and he strings them all together. He's doing this for a very specific reason with a very specific audience. If I were to stand up here and I was to to say a few phrases like, oh, say, can you see? Or, we the people. What have I just invoked in your memory? The founding documents, the star-spangled banner, patriotic themes themes that go back to the founding of our country. I didn't have to say that I was going back to those documents. I didn't even have to quote the whole document. All I had to do was throw out a little phrase and immediately I invoke in your mind a whole bunch of things that go with it, right? That's what Peter just did. To a Jewish audience, that's what he just did. He invoked in their mind a bunch of touchstone verses out of the Old Testament that they would have all known by memory And it would have immediately triggered in their mind thoughts of, oh, I know what you're referring to. I remember that from my upbringing. That's what he just did. So let's understand what he just invoked. Peter uses these references. Number one, Isaiah 43.20. He says, you are a chosen race. The nation of Israel was a chosen race. Do you remember why they were chosen? Because they were big and powerful? Because they were the most mighty of all the people in the world? The most numerous of all the people in the world? No, specifically in Deuteronomy, God says the opposite. He says, I chose you, though you were not the most mighty, though you were not the most numerous. In other words, you didn't deserve my choice, but I yet made my choice of you nonetheless. Similarly, we are not the people the world would assume should be chosen. right? None of us were mighty, noble, as Paul said. We were chosen. He says, the nation of Israel was a royal priesthood. Do you know that in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God called to the nation who had just left Egypt and said, You are all priests. The whole nation of Israel were priests. And then Moses went up on the mountain, spent some time with God, came back down, and what did he find? This nation of priests, all commissioned to serve God, were worshipping a golden calf. So much for that plan. So he turns in that moment and he says, and by the way, there was one group within the nation who was not worshipping the calf. Did you remember that? Of all the nation that was there present worshiping, one tribe within the nation was obedient and did not bow their knee to that that idol and stay pure to God God despite what was going on around them. Do you know who that was? Levites. The Levites. And because they were true, as Moses comes down the mountain, God says, only the Levites will be my priests from here forth while the rest of the nation forfeited that opportunity to be priests. So they only had one tribe now considered faithful. They were yet, though, a royal priesthood as God originally designed it. He says you were a holy nation. Holy means what? Set apart? Set apart from sin? This was a nation to be set apart as a beacon among other nations. Don't get in your mind here this thought that he took the nation of Israel and said, I just want to set you apart. Stay away from the rest of the world. You just come over here. You realize that in the time that Israel existed in ancient history, of all the places on the globe you could have put a nation, if you wanted to put a nation in the place where they were going to be in the middle of everything... The place you would put them was Palestine because it was the crossroads between all travel from east to west, north to south. Everything went through that spot. They were grand central station of the world. By God's design, he put them in that place. And they were there to be a beacon, to be a light on the hill in the nations of the world. They didn't act that way. In fact, what actually happened, of course, was they, they, they decided to follow after the world rather than be set apart from the world. And by the time that God left, His the, his presence left the temple, They had reverted to the point where they looked no different than the Canaanite cultures around them, unfortunately. Finally, he says, you were to be God's possession, which is a people I could dwell with, in other words. A people I would live with. But, of course, what did the nation of Israel do? They didn't stay true to him. They played the harlot with the idols of the cultures around them. And they were prostituting themselves, God said. So he had to remove his presence from them. So Israel failed in their day, and they have been judged for it, as Romans 9 through 11 tells us. Not so as to fall, Paul says, only for a time, but yet nonetheless for a time. And in this time in the intermediate, while we wait for God to return to the nation, He still has work to get done. And the beautiful thing about God is, He doesn't depend on us to get His work done. He just allows us to be the ones through whom He gets His work done. That's, it's a privilege. So when the nation slipped and fell, the nation of Israel... He didn't stop at working in the world. He moved from the nation to the Gentile world in the church, to you and I. And so now, during this intermediate time, we are the ones, Peter is reminding us, we are the ones who will fulfill these purposes. Look at them. We are God's chosen people. We are a priesthood of believers. I, I once heard a pastor say this, and it's a perfect way to say it. He says, you are all Catholic priests. Because the word Catholic just means universal and priests, all believers now have the opportunity in the sacrificial service of our life to be a priesthood to serve the body of Christ. We are all Catholic priests, if you understand the biblical terms. We are, as a nation of believers, set apart from the world. We are those who are set apart in faith, apart from the world to be a shining light. Again, not holy huddles, not to sit in here and just you know, enjoy our own company and go out there and pretend like we're not Christian, but to be a light wherever we go. And then finally, we are the people God calls His now. We are His possession, which means we are the ones He is dwelling with through the Holy Spirit in us. So God is dwelling in the temple of us, our body, now. He has taken all those things He intended to do through the nation and He is doing it to us now. That's what Peter says in this letter to these believers. You were once not a people, now you are the people of God. So as I close today, if God has selected us among all that He could have selected, not because we deserve it, certainly not because we were the best He had, but because he has a purpose in selecting us. Peter says, remember, you now have a purpose that goes beyond just yourself. I think the church today, in many circles, is very self-centered. We come to church for what we can get out of it. And what God has said is, we have things we need, yes, and we need ministering, yes, but ultimately our purpose in being a Christian is to go fulfill these purposes to others. Within the body, yes, and then externally being a light to the world so that others could come to know the Lord through us. If we don't do those things, if we don't hold to His Word in our own life, if we don't proclaim His Word to other people, if we don't fulfill these purposes, who will? Who else will? If it's not us, it's nobody. He's called us for that purpose. That's God's expectation on our lives. Dear Father, we ask that You would cover the mistakes that may have been made in this teaching with the truth that You can impart by Your Word. We pray, Father, that our lives would be directed in holiness according to Your Word and Your Spirit. And I also pray, Father, that whatever it may be you've called us here to do, however you intend to use us, that we would be obedient to that. And we would seek, Father, to please you by putting aside sin, by serving you as a priest would serve faithfully in the temple, Father. In the body of Christ, let us serve. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.